Hey, it's Ryan Rosillo. I'm the host of the Ryan Rosillo Podcast at The Ringer. We are a sports show, but we do it a little differently because we want to cut through all of the nonsense and try to figure out what's really happening and give you those bigger picture observations. Do a lot of NFL, a lot of NBA, and of course, college football. Also have a great guest lineup, a lot of athletes, front office guys, and even we do some actors and writers from famous TV shows and movies, plus our life advice segment at the end of every show. So make sure you follow The Ryan Rosillo Show on Spotify. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Have you ever spotted McDonald's hot, crispy fries right as they're being scooped into the carton? And time just stands Still. I'm in the middle of England, idling impatiently behind a blue vehicle, waiting for the driver ahead of me to get going already. There is a chill in the air and also the smell of gasoline. The traffic includes a bunch of stone-faced guys in matching suits who seem to be no strangers to this sort of rush hour. But this isn't some tricky roundabout in the British countryside. No, I'm standing at the tricky roundabout in the British countryside, the 5.9-kilometer-long Silverstone Circuit. It's the home of the British Grand Prix and a place at the heart of the whole enterprise of competitive motorsport. The guy in front of me is about to take off in an overgrown toy car that costs like eight figures to develop and build. My name is Logan Sargent and I'm a Formula One driver. Logan is a 22-year-old rookie who's competing for Williams Racing this season. It's the middle of February, a few weeks away from Logan's F1 debut. He's here in this big garage hangar getting nestled in his car. It's a brand new car, hot off the presses. It's even got a name, the FW45. And Logan is about to take the FW45 for a few spins around the block for the very first time. There's nothing more enjoyable than driving around one of the fastest cars in the world. Logan has been eager for this day ever since it was announced last fall that he would be one of two Williams drivers this season. Or... Actually, he's been looking forward to it ever since he was a little kid, racing go-karts back home in South Florida. Growing up karting in America, everyone always talked about how good the competition was in Europe. It was sort of just like a, okay, well, let's go find out and let's give it a go. Now Logan is being installed in his F1 car. And the process is kind of reminding me of a bride getting put into her wedding dress by a half dozen of her closest friends. There are a lot of straps and a whole custom bodice. It does not look very comfortable. When it's over and he's snug inside the cockpit, all I can see of him is the American flag on his helmet. A team of engineers and mechanics, those guys in the matching suits, waltz around the car, bending and swooping and rearranging tire covers just so. All day long, This place has been pretty loud, with lots of drilling and squeaking and clattering. 
The giant dispenser of earplugs that stands right inside the door made sense as soon as I walked in. But now it has gotten incredibly quiet, which is how you know something important is about to go down. The car roars to life. One of the waltzing mechanics attaches a vent hose over the exhaust pipe, and another lowers the car from its lift. And then, just like that, Logan is off. The big experiment is on. Welcome to the Ringer F1 show, where I'm your rather unexpected host, Katie Baker. Like Logan Sargent, I'm something of a Formula One rookie myself. Earlier this year, while we were brainstorming story ideas, Megan Schuster, a Ringer F1 show host and also my editor, mentioned that a 22-year-old Florida man was getting set to be the first American driver on the F1 grid since 2015 and the first full-time American driver in 16 years. This was notable for a couple of reasons. First, Logan's debut coincides with a year in which the United States is scheduled to host not one, not two, but three Grands Prix. This is a big deal, especially for a country that has kind of been disregarded as a non-factor in the F1 world for quite some time. Having three races feels like the culmination of, and reward for, a recent wave of domestic interest and investment in the sport. It's also notable because Logan's debut was taking place sooner than just about anyone had expected. Last year, Logan raced in Formula 2, kind of the minor leagues for F1. He placed fourth overall, respectable, but hardly world-beating. For much of that season, it wasn't even clear whether he would manage to qualify for a spot in Formula 1 at all. But he did. And so I did what I often do when I'm assigned to cover an athlete. I hopped on a plane to go watch him and his team at practice. Welcome to London Heathrow. The local time here is now 20 past 11. There's a rude drone loitering just off the balcony of my hotel room when I wake up early on a Monday morning, a few hours before I'm supposed to meet Logan. Normally this would unnerve me, but at this hotel, it kind of just blends in with the scenery. The scenery I'm talking about is a place called Silverstone. It's on a spread of land that's hosted all kinds of communities over the last thousand-ish years. There were Benedictine monks, hunting lodges for British royalty, and during World War II, a Royal Air Force base. But these days, Silverstone hosts cars, lots and lots of the world's most exquisitely engineered cars. Since the late 1940s, Silverstone has been one of Formula One's most hallowed racetracks. It's paved course winding around old aircraft runways, surrounded by oak trees. My hotel room overlooks Hamilton Strait, which serves as the start and finish line of the British Grand Prix. Everyone I ask about the course, an F1 executive, a museum docent, a chauffeur, a random guy in a parking lot. Sorry and thanks to that guy, by the way. Everyone brims with pride when discussing its importance in racing. I think most people will say, uh, when you think of Silverstone, it's, it's almost synonymous with Formula One. For the locals, it's a village where they live, and it happens to have a racetrack around. <laughs> but these days, it's all about racing. Formula One is the most uh, uh, popular, I suppose. People camping out all around for days, right? It's just got this 
really unique appeal. The, the atmosphere here beats anything else in the motorsport world. Logan Sargent is a fan himself, in large part because Silverstone is where he earned one of the two F2 victories on his resume. It's a special place. I absolutely love driving here. Uh, I love the flow. I love the nature of the track. And um, it's always been super kind to me. Today, Logan's objective isn't to win. His F1 debut is still almost a month away. Today is more like the biggest day before the big day. It isn't a race, but it is a major test. Major enough that the drone outside my hotel balcony is there to record footage. And major enough that Logan isn't the only guy involved. Hi, my name is Alexander Albon, and I'm a Williams Formula 1 driver. Alex, who is 27 years old, is about to start his fourth F1 campaign. He and Logan make up the Williams Racing duo this season. And they are both here today for something called Shakedown. I'll let the professional explain what that means. Yeah, today is like, uh, you called Shakedown Day a bit of a, it's a bit nerve-wracking actually. You, you test the car f- for the first time over, it determines your, your year, so you kind of want it to go well, let's say. Alex and Logan are colleagues. And they both have the same goal, to earn points for Williams. But they're direct competitors, too. And since they both drive a copy of the same car, the FW45, sometimes their best opportunity to show off their skill apples to apples is by beating each other. We're we're teammates, but weirdly, we're also rivals. I think it's important to have that healthy competition because that's what pushes us as drivers forward, and that will ultimately push the team forward. Today isn't a race. It's just a test run. But to Alex and Logan, it's an important day, a chance to remind their team that they are the right guys for the job. Both drivers will get a few laps in the FW45. They'll push the cars a bit to see how they respond. Then they'll come back to their sprawling team of techs with some feedback. And there can be a lot of feedback. There's there's tens, hundreds of thousands of things you can tune the cars to do which one do you choose? That's, that's the art. I head from my hotel across the racetrack to the garage to check it all out, which is how I find myself posted up at that good old tricky roundabout in the British countryside, waiting for Logan to get set and go. Logan zooms out of the garage and navigates Silverstone's infamous nooks and crannies. He accelerates through straightaways like the one called Wellington, He hugs curves with names like Maggots and Beckets. He makes a return to the garage to have his car essentially dismantled and reconstructed in minutes based on his notes. During another lap, he makes a pit stop that takes only seconds. The crew replaces entire car parts in less time than it takes to change the batteries in a remote control. I mean, the professional competence is shocking and strangely beautiful to watch. One day earlier, during a visit to the Silverstone Museum, I tried my hand at a version of it. They've got this exhibit where you try to, and I'll quote the website here, have a go with a wheel gun. Well, here's how my go went. Okay, so this is our simulated uh, pick gun. Uh-huh. That's uh, Lee, a museum volunteer. He explained that the exhibit is designed to train novices, like me, on the pit gun that a mechanic would use to change wheels on an F1 car. So if you 
you'd like to pick up the gun, you'll see it's really quite heavy. Okay, I've this got the gun. This one's got an electric motor in it, so you'll hear that when it's tightening the nut, you'll hear it go. Okay. When the nut's tight, then you move to the next one. Okay. So you've got four wheel nuts to do, hopefully, in under 10 seconds. Okay. So we'll give you a three second countdown. Get ready to press the trigger. Yep. My first attempt took exactly 10 seconds, which I was personally pretty proud of. But Lee was not about to let me sell. Oh, I did it. We're aiming for under 10, but you got 10.0. So I think you should give that one more go. Now you know how it works. Okay, three second countdown again. Third run. This is looking much faster. 9.3. Success. Back at the actual pit, the drone is following Logan's car like a remora on a shark. From the hangar, I walk to a grassy area where I can get a better view of the blink and you'll miss it moment when Logan drives by again. I feel and hear Logan coming before I can see him. First a tremble, then a rumble. And then once again, all I can really see of him is a Lego man helmet passing by at triple digit speeds. By the end of the day, Alex and Logan have combined for 17 test laps, and everyone seems to be in high spirits. Inside the garage, workers break down the FW45, as well as the entire operation. All the computers, the food, the giant pop-up work trailers that kind of look like enormous transformers. They blast music, and they move with the seasoned, no-nonsense ease of a bunch of U2 roadies. When I run into Logan out on the tarmac, it seems like there's a weight off of his shoulders. Baby's first F1 shakedown, done and dusted. He leans into the microphone with a smile and delivers some end-of-day preseason advice. Buy low, sell high. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in most sports, even being the best of the best of the best, still means being part of a sizable community. Like, there are 32 NFL franchises out there, and each one of them is allowed to carry 53 active players on the roster, and I won't be doing any further math. Or take the other kind of football. There are 20 teams in the Premier League, each with 25 players, and so on. Even if you ignore the team sports and turn to one of the most individual sports imaginable, that would be golf, there are initially something like 144 guys in a typical tournament field. And then there's Formula One, where currently 10 teams vie for the Constructors' Championship, and each team enters with two cars and two drivers. That's it. That's the fleet. It gets thin at the top. F1 is where you're talking 20 drivers. That's Brandon Snow, the Managing Director of Commercial and Marketing for Formula One. F1 drivers grow up quick. I mean, um, you know, they're driving super fast cars that uh, they're putting their life on the line every time they get behind it. And they have been since they were, you know, 12 years old. Logan Sargent was even younger than that when he first began racing go-karts near his hometown of Fort Lauderdale, Florida. His older brother Dalton was doing it too, and Logan wanted to keep up. I started when I was six. Um, yeah, I mean, I took it super seriously, even though I, you know, I didn't realize it was just, you know, more a bit of fun. You have that competitive nature, and you always want to win. And um, I mean, looking back at it, I probably, 
you know, I probably should have taken it a little bit less serious, but maybe that's sort of what sets you up for when you get to formula cars. So I really enjoyed it. Uh, I miss it a lot, but, um, yeah, it was, it was, it was really fun as a kid. You're kind of smiling. Like how did that seriousness manifest? Like, were you just ultra competitive and I just really hated losing (laughs) and, um, you know, I would do anything to, you know, a lot of the times I was also going up against kids that were older than me. You have to sort of, you know, dig deeper and figure out how you can, you know, eventually get get to where they are and, and ultimately beat them. So that was sort of the mindset. Logan had what sounds like a happy childhood in Florida. He loved NASCAR. Jeff Gordon was his favorite driver. He spent lots of time deep sea fishing with family and friends. But at the wildly young age of 12, he left it all behind middle school, his pals and hobbies, the entire United States, to chase the carding dream. Meanwhile, when I was 12, I was buying pacifier necklaces, collecting troll dolls, and constantly losing to my neighbors at Mario Kart. I was 12 years old when I moved to Switzerland, yeah. Like, what do you remember about that? Had you been there before, or did you move there, and that was your first trip there as well? Um, I'd been to Italy quite a bit for karting uh, just before then. And um, so I was relatively familiar with the area, I guess. Um, it was a pretty smooth transition because it was an American school. Um, so everyone spoke English. And um, I was so young at the time, I probably didn't really understand what what was actually going on. Uh, so it just felt pretty natural. Were you still in that same competitive mindset? I'd say the competitive mindset just got stronger and stronger and stronger. In 2015, when Logan was 14 years old, he won the World Junior Karting title in Italy, beating out a few dozen young competitors from around the globe. The karting publication T-Kart chatted with him following the race. Logan, you did it. (laughs) In the end of the season, you did it. You are world champion. What's your feeling? It hasn't even sunk in yet. It's the best feeling I've ever felt in my life. It was a victory that put him in esteemed company. Current F1 racers like Alex Albon and Charles Leclerc and Fernando Alonso are all past world karting winners. The win was the first by an American since Lake Speed. That's first name Lake, last name Speed, in 1978. Soon afterward, Logan graduated up to a new class of cars. I think I remember actually Logan... I know him obviously a lot better now he's in Williams, but I think I remember the first day he did in a car when he was probably about 14 or 15. That's English driver Jamie Chadwick. She's 24 years old and is a three-time champion on the Women's W Series circuit. Last season, she and Logan were part of the Williams Academy developmental program. This season, she's racing Indy Next cars against men in the United States. Looking back to the 2000 teens, Jamie remembers a slightly different Logan. And he was a lot smaller than he is now, um, and he didn't talk. So he's now developed some sort of social skills, which is good. Um, But um, bless him. Yeah, he's cool to see someone like that. I mean, he obviously was, I think, a world champion in karting at the time. So he's spoken about highly and um, one of the young kart shots that was always going to go through. But I think now to see him actually graduate, especially out of the Williams Academy, into that Formula One seat is cool. But early success didn't mean Logan's arrival on the F1 scene was ever guaranteed. As recently as early 2021, he wasn't feeling like much of a hotshot. While he had performed well on the Formula 3 circuit, he was struggling to find anyone willing to give him a shot in F2. And for a time, it kind of felt like the end of the road. 
yeah, I mean, there were there were times where I was just completely over it. Like I, I just got to the point where it just felt like it was it was just enough. Like I had had enough of it. Racing cars is a lonely pursuit, no matter how many voices come through a driver's earpiece. In the end, it's just one person in that car. And Logan says he had to learn to leave that mentality on the track. I mean, it was definitely a point in my life where I leaned on people more than I ever have. I tend to try and not lean on people as much as I can. But um, yeah, I mean, that that goes for, for my parents, my brother, my trainer, my managers. I mean, there was a, a relatively big and good group of people around me. I think it, it's just about sort of shifting your mindset at times and just trying to draw the positives from things. Just knowing that if you keep putting the work in, you will get your chance. It took them to, to sort of help me through that, to, to see that. His chance finally arrived later that year, in October of 2021, when he signed to the Williams Academy ranks on a long-term deal. By December of that year, the team was entering him in the young driver test in Abu Dhabi, a showcase and a show of confidence that Logan told reporters at the time, quote, probably tops the best day of my racing career. Williams, at the end of 2021, um, I mean, opened me with, with open arms. Um, threw me into my first F1 test about a month later. But, um, no, I've, I've absolutely loved it. Um, you know, they've helped me grow as a, as a person, as a driver. Williams Racing is really hoping that this young driver might help the team grow in the right direction, too. So, how to properly summarize Williams Racing? Turns out to be a little bit like trying to explain the New York Knicks. words pop into your head when, when you think about Williams as a team? Uh, former greatness. Uh, well, he used to be really, really uh, uh, successful, but just recently he's been sort of like the bottom of the table, so uh, uh, some people laugh, some people, it's, they're still going, it's our local teams. Williams is like the shit version of Mercedes, basically. Williams didn't have the best of years last year, and um, they're such a, a historical brand in this sport. What is the brand of Williams racing? Well, Mr. Williams himself. Mr. Williams is the late Frank Williams, an auto racing godfather and the FW part of the nomenclature for the vehicle known as FW45. The story goes that Williams, a sort of colorful British Ted Turner figure, was given a ride in a friend's Jaguar XK150 in the late 1950s and fell in love with both gorgeous conveyances and high speeds. After a few false starts, he launched the enterprise known as Williams Grand Prix Engineering in 1977. Over the next two decades, the team won nine Constructors' Championships. Only Ferrari, a team that has competed in F1 racing since the 50s, has won more in total. Here's Williams in 1980 talking about what made his team stand out. We have a a certain way, a modus operandi, a way of operating and that is a fairly informal manner, but it does achieve, under these very difficult conditions, very long hours, uh, it does achieve the right result. But those were the glory days. This is the now. In August 2020, Williams was sold to Doralton Capital, a private U.S.-based investment firm. Both Frank Williams and his daughter Claire, who had been the deputy team principal since 2013, stepped away from leadership of the team that September. For four of the past five seasons, Williams has finished in last place in the constructors' standings. A few months ago, the team's principal and its technical director departed. 
Williams, in other words, has been down kind of bad, which is why the team is trying to make a bet with some upside. Williams may feature F1's lone American driver, but there's one F1 team that is physically located in the United States. That's Haas out of North Carolina. Gunther Steiner, Haas's team principal, was recently asked by KVUE, a TV network in Austin, Texas, what he thought about having an American driver in the F1 mix. I wish that he makes experience, and then once he has made experience, he comes to us, the American team. How about that? Translation. Steiner wants Logan to work out the kinks with someone else first. Finding F1 inroads within the U.S. has been a race of its own. Haas has its physical foothold. There's Williams, of course, with its Floridian racer and its brand new partnership with the American oil company Gulf. And Red Bull, the program currently at the top of the F1 heap, chose to hold its 2023 launch day in New York City. The Yankee influence goes all the way to the top now. In 2016, the American entertainment behemoth, Liberty Media, which also owns Sirius XM and the Atlanta Braves, bought Formula One for a reported $4.4 billion. The seller was the very succession-sounding company, Delta Topco. And in 2019, the real domestic growth catalyst appeared. The Netflix TV documentary series, Drive to Survive, which helped bring about an explosion of American interest in what had largely been a faraway sport. Here's Brandon Snow. For us, from a pure business perspective, what's happening with Formula One in the U.S. right now is clearly a moment. When ESPN started airing the sport in the U.S. in 2018, the network acquired the rights for next to nothing. Drive to Survive launched on Netflix the following year, and by 2022, F1 ratings on ESPN's family of networks had more than doubled averaging upwards of 1.2 million viewers, which was great news, and also made those TV rights really expensive. Last summer, ESPN won a full-fledged bidding war against competitors like Netflix, Amazon, and NBC. The reward was that ESPN now gets to pay Formula One somewhere between 75 and 90 million a season. You know, one in two fans in the U.S. of Formula One are new within the last couple of years. Within that, we have like almost 30% of our fans under the age of 35, and Logan's only 22. All this increased coverage has been a virtuous circle. ESPN gives viewers the live action. Drive to Survive fills them in on the context and the personalities and the beautiful people and places and the drama. And around and around we go. If you were not in the sport or you didn't visit it, then it was very difficult to give, a, to give a picture more than cars that race around the track around the world, and that was it. That's Sven Smeets, the Williams Racing Sporting Director. I think that um, Drive to Survive helped the people to actually understand what is going on in the teams, between the teams, and has attracted a, a different uh, audience to the sport. It also helped Alex Albon meet his girlfriend, LPGA golfer Lily Mooney He. She didn't know anything about racing until she watched the series. Then she started following various drivers on social media. One thing led to another. You know, when I come to America now, and I, 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 my girlfriend, she's from LA, the amount that I get noticed now compared to where I was three years ago is, is huge. It's just, uh, it's blown up. So um, it's very unique because um, Formula One has a tradition to be quite traditional, funny enough. And um, 
Europe has always been the main the main fan base. And suddenly we're getting three races in America. All the sponsors, they're, they're becoming American. It's kind of a takeover, which has made the sport healthier than it's ever been before. So um, it's great. This year, the U.S. will play host to three different Grand Prix races. But not everyone is thrilled about this, as Lee, who was my pit gun trainer at the Silverstone Museum, reminded me. You know, Americans like me are, are starting to take notice and <laughs> come Well, you have three, not being greedy, are you? Three Grand Prix in America, and this is where it started, and we're only allowed one. Now, come on, that's not fair. I was gonna say in May, there's Miami, a star-studded place to see and be seen. The paddock will be located in the middle of the Miami Dolphins football field. In October, there's Austin, where some 440,000 people visited during the race weekend last year. And for the first time in more than 40 years, there's Las Vegas in November, a Saturday night event with part of the race course running down the strip. It is outlandish. I, you know, it's, it's literally going to be this massive spectacle. I hope the racing is good. Your move, fight night. Or maybe that's not the right comparison. Maybe I ought to be thinking bigger. F1 is like taking a Super Bowl on the road 23 times. On the day I plan to visit Williams headquarters, I wake up to a far more pleasant sound than a buzzing drone. I'm at a different hotel now, one nearer to the small town of Grove, where the Williams factory and museum and wind tunnel have been based since the mid-90s. It's a day after shakedown, and they're still trying to figure out how to get the most out of their car ahead of the upcoming season. These are creations that can reach speeds of over 200 miles an hour during a race. But as any driver will tell you, the top speed isn't really the thing. You get it a lot where you're asked the top speed, but actually you never focus on the top speed. You always focus on, um, you know, the ultimate speed on a lap. A lot of people ask, what's it like? How fast do you go? And it's honestly a really bad question because yeah, okay, you go really fast in a straight line, but that's not really what's impressive. The acceleration is the least impressive thing about an F1 car. What's impressive is the rate of deceleration, how good the brakes are, how efficient the aero is, how, how much speed you can carry through the corners, the amount of grip that you have, you know, the force that it puts on your body at, you know, at, at maximum load is just next level. It's really almost impossible to understand unless you've experienced it. I describe it as you're sitting on a roller coaster, but you're going faster than that, and you're in control of it. You're, you're, you're the one dictating where that roller coaster goes. When I arrive at the team's campus, I stare into the model race car that sits in the main lobby and wonder how the hell these people can do this. Drivers are strapped into these little slim roller coasters in cold rain or in blazing heat for up to two hours. Two hours. The vehicle looks impossibly delicate, like it's made out of nothing at all. Walking through the Williams factory, I'm struck by the fact that it's not what I envision. It doesn't smell like gasoline or greasy tools, and there aren't the usual clanks and clatters you'd expect at a place like Jiffy Lube. No, this place mostly smells of computers, and it sounds like some sort of radiology lab. Which makes sense. At one end of a hallway, near a door marked composite manufacturing, is an x-ray unit. It's designed not for human bones, but for tiny car parts. 
engineered to find some imperceptible hairline fracture in a paper-thin sheet of metal that could slow a car down. I go up to chat with Sven Smeets, the Williams sporting director, in his office. There's a giant wall calendar, all marked up with the various dates of far-flung F1 races. When I point out that there sure is a lot going on, he jokes that his kids have the opposite calendar on their wall with all the dates that he's actually home. It has been a hectic few months at Williams. In late December, both the principal of the team, Joost Capito, and its technical director abruptly departed. Williams hired James Vallis from Mercedes as its new head, but he won't officially begin until late February. Smeets is in good spirits, though. Shakedown went well. People that have done these kind of rollouts for 20 years, they all said this morning that it was the best rollout they ever had. And Logan played a big part in that. I think he did very well. I think he was very eager uh, to start to start today and, and maybe um, a little bit too eager because he has been waiting for this moment now for a very long time. A very long time? Logan is only 22. Still, when you've been racing cars since you were barely out of kindergarten, time has a way of feeling a little out of whack. Logan's ascent to Formula One actually came earlier than Smeets and most others would have expected. In early January, Smeets told reporters that Williams had originally planned to wait until 2024 for Logan's debut, giving him two Formula 2 seasons to develop. But last fall, Williams decided to part ways with Nicholas Latifi, an underperforming driver. The team announced that they intended to replace him with Logan. There was one problem. Logan hadn't yet picked up enough of what are called super license points to actually qualify to drive an F1. The super license point system is convoluted, but the bottom line was that without a strong showing in the final F2 race of the season, Logan would be ineligible for his promotion. I think he was under a lot of pressure last year, uh, and he had to deal with that for quite a long period. When Williams made the announcement, Logan's next and final race was still several agonizing weeks away. So there was a lot of pressure. Yeah, that was, that was definitely probably the highest pressure I've been under. In the last race of that season, Logan placed fifth. It was a finish that was more than good enough to finally earn him that seat in F1. People often ask Logan if he feels a lot of pressure this season as the lone American representative on the grid. But after the last couple of years he's had, not really. I feel like coming into this season, I'm, I'm as relaxed I, as I've ever been. I'm very aware of the challenge ahead and how difficult it's going to be. But um, I also understand that, you know, I need to to build into the year. I need to learn a lot. And, um, you know, I, I, I trust my ability. Logan remembers when, in early 2021, he thought maybe his F1 dream had spun out entirely. Looking back, he says that low point can provide both motivation and reassurance. Definitely makes you a lot stronger, that's for sure. You know, I think it also puts you to a place where it's like, I never want to experience that again, which makes you more motivated to make sure you do everything you can in your power to be the best you can be. But in saying that, you've, you've also been through it. So you don't have that fear of what it's like. I think you realize no matter what happens, life will move on and, uh, you know, you'll figure it out no, no matter what. At the Bay Tree Pub, a sports bar in the heart of Grove, it is, of course, not unusual for folks to come in with F1 on their minds. Lots of locals, after all, have some connection to the industry. We get a good crowd in uh, for for it when it's, when it's on, especially for the British Grand Prix. Yeah. Um, but um, 
it's just because it's local people work up will work at the, uh, at, the, at, the at the factory locally uh, so that the people are interested to how they do so, and on the got, other hand you know, the since I'm not a local I'm being viewed with curiosity even suspicion by other patrons do you still live in America I do I live in California okay. just seems weird doesn't it reporting like in America and then that coming all the way to the UK to do yeah America. but I mean it does seem weird sure I came here for this team. Shouldn't I have just stayed home and watched Drive to Survive? If I had, I probably could have gotten a decent enough look at the passionate fans, the graceful pit crews, the steely drivers, the giant sums of money being burned like fuel. But had I reported this story from home, I definitely would have missed one thing. The beautiful bluntness of the locals when it comes to Team Williams. (laughs) They have been a bit rubbish. (laughs) What would a non-rubbish season look like for Logan and for Williams? During the opening race weekend in Bahrain in early March, Alex Albon told a reporter that he was, quote, more pessimistic than optimistic about his team's chances, and that he didn't really anticipate Williams climbing out at the 10th spot this year. Williams performed well in the season's opening race in Bahrain. Alex earned a point by placing 10th, and Logan finished in 12th, ahead of the grid's other two rookie drivers. Since then, things have gotten slightly rougher. Logan finished 16th in Saudi Arabia and got involved in a little wreck near the end of the Australian Grand Prix. Still, his confidence and command have impressed many around the paddock. Williams funded him because they had deep belief that he was the real deal. That's new Williams team principal James Vowles speaking at an F1 press conference in Saudi Arabia in mid-March. Vowles told reporters that a few years ago, when he was working at Mercedes, He evaluated a young Logan Sargent, but opted not to sign him to that team. And my reticence came from the fact that prior to that, it's difficult to really judge him. But I have to say, he's now been in the car. I now have the ability to look at his data. He is here on merit. And as a result of Williams investing correctly in him, he's now a professional driver, deserving driver on the grid. For Logan Sargent, the journey so far is a lot like an F1 race. It's happening fast, and there are lots of sharp corners. It requires resilience and a lot of endurance. It's painful, and the most fun thing he can imagine. It's a big business and a small world, and it's exactly where he has always wanted to be. I think mistakes are much more punished in F1. Um, it's a tricky one. When the car goes, it, it really goes. So there, you know, you have to be. It's definitely on a knife's edge for the most part, but. Um, I mean, there's, there's nothing more enjoyable than driving around one of the fastest cars in the world uh, on the limit. This story was reported and written by me, Katie Baker. The executive producers of this audio feature are Juliet Littman and Sean Fennessy. Story editing by Megan Schuster. Produced by Bobby Wagner and Vikram Patel. Fact-checking by Kellen B. Coates. Copy editing by Helena Hunt. Sound design, mixing, and mastering by Bobby Wagner. The music you heard in this episode was from Blue Dot Sessions and Epidemic Sound. Thanks for listening.